Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm T.J. Moffitt, Deputy Director of the Peacekeeping and Stability Operations Institute, located at the U.S. Army War College, and your host today. It's a pleasure to have you with us. We're excited to have United States Army Colonel Joe Rosichka join us today after returning from a 10-month deployment in Bamako, Mali, where he served as the senior U.S. military observer and command group advisor in the United Nations Multidimensional Integrated Stabilization Mission in Mali, also known as MINUSMA. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Thank you. We are also happy to have Colonel Johnny Drake, an Army FAO, Foreign Area Officer, who is currently the Peace Ops Division Chief in PKSOI. It's good to be with you, TJ and Joe. Today we're going to talk about Colonel Rosichka's experience with the UN mission in Mali. First, we'd like to talk about the mandate that was established in 2013 by a unanimous decision of the Security Council. It was a Chapter 7 mandate to take military action to restore peace and security in Mali. It also authorized all means necessary. Fast forward 10 years later, and the government of Mali, which has transferred power from a democratically elected civilian president to a coup-led colonel, and we now have a new mandate. The new government in 2023 demanded that the UN depart from Mali by the end of the year, giving it approximately six months to leave. Approximately six months before that, Colonel Rosichka arrived in Mali with his team of, of U.S. observers to support the staff. Joe, how were you selected to participate in this mission, and what did you think when you were told that you were going to Mali? Well, so first, TJ, thanks for having me on, on the podcast. The selection process uh, for the mission kind of varies by headquarters. So uh, my team was composed of multiple services. So I had Army officers, Marine Corps officers, and Air Force officers. So each service uh, is tasked to provide uh, a certain skill set or a certain uh, number of people to these to these missions. Um, so that's that's really how it came about for me. The headquarters I was working for prior to deployment uh, was given a tasking for for a uh, a augmentee or a staff officer, and and I was just selected to go. As far as the impression, um, I I don't know that I really had an impression. Uh, I, I had some educational background about the United Nations, but in 23 years of service, I never thought that I would end up as a, uh, a senior officer advising a UN peacekeeping mission in the country of Mali. So I, I think it was more of a unknown for me uh, on what I was getting into. Uh, you know, the, the headquarters I, I fell under, the uh, United States Military Observer Group, USMOG, uh, they did a great job of getting not only myself, but my 10 fellow team members uh, prepared to go uh, and operate in this, in this environment, something that's very unique and not not something we're used to as U.S. officers. Okay, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, 
something about the MINUSMA mission that, that many people don't know is it has approximately 17,000 people in it between the civilian uh, mission and the force. Can you explain a little bit about the composition of the, the, the mission? Yeah, so there's three primary components uh, to the UN mission uh, when we talk about uh, specifically the UN mission in Mali. Um, so the first is there's a civilian component, um, which is uh, led by a uh, senior civilian uh, individual. We call him the SRSG or the senior representative to the uh, secretary general. So that's the civilian component. And under him, he has multiple different offices um, that operate um, kind of in line with the force, which I'll discuss in a minute. Um, so much like the U.S., you know, the U.S. military, we have our own civilian leadership. It's very similar uh, in a U.N. mission. The second component of a U.N. mission is the force, which is the military component of, of the mission. And specific to Mali, um, it, this one was led primarily by a Senegalese two-star general um, who was the senior force commander. Uh, and then underneath him, he has numerous, a uh, total of 198 staff officers. Um, and then inside of that, there were about 13,000 ground troops that were spread throughout Mali and the various sectors that we had. Um, so that's, that's the military component. And they're, they're really responsible for, uh, I, I guess, enforcing or putting into place the mandate that is directed by uh, the UN Security Council. And then the third component is the, uh, the police component. Uh, so inside of Bamako, you have the civilian, senior civilian, the SRSG, as I discussed. You have the force commander, which is a Senegalese two-star uh, general. And then you have a, uh, a general officer that is in charge of the police force um, that is also working inside of Mali in various locations. Joe, so you've got three components, the military, the police, and the civilian component kind of different specialties within that civilian component. Um, but could you talk a little bit about the mandate that MINUSMA had, the mandate being something akin to the political directive or the authorization for the use of military force in a U.S. system? What was it? Um, how did it change in this final year that you were there? It was sort of a historic year to see MINUSMA uh, change radically uh, since ins its inception in 2010. Right. So the every UN mission is obligated to, I think it's annually, renew the mandate. Um, and so the UN and the UN Security Council go through a process to make sure that the mandate that is in place is still uh, really agreed upon by the host nation. And then it's also something that is still achievable. During my time over 10 months, we did see a mandate change. So the, the renewal time period for Mali is in June. So June 30th, we expected a, a new mandate to come forward and, and be implemented in Mali. So the previous mandate up to June of 2023, um, we were there to support a, you know, a political transition, get back to a democratically elected uh, government to uh, implement a peace process uh, dealing with the Algerian peace accords that had been put into place to really bring bring the, the government of Mali and then the the breakaway factions that are within the country together to to solve the the political process peacefully. Um, that that changed drastically while I was there. So the mandate changed to where the government of Mali asked the United Nations to leave the country. Um, and so the last half of my deployment was dealing with how do you withdraw a 10-year-old mission of 13,000, you know, peacekeepers and associated equi equipment in a six-month period. 
um, a, a timeline that is is very, very short uh, to accomplish that task. So that's really how, how the mandate changed. So the second part of the deployment was solely focused on the withdrawal of United Nations forces from Mali. Was there an expectation that that decision was going to be made by the government? No. So I, I don't think so. And again, you know, as, as the role, my role was a, the senior advisor to the force commander. Um, and so I worked with all the senior level military leadership uh, inside the UN mission. And up to probably the 28th of June, we all expected some type of change, but we did not expect the drastic change of, hey, withdraw from this country. Um, so it was somewhat of a, a surprise when that was announced, um, when when the uh, speech was given at the Security Council and, and our new mandate came forward and we had to put that into place on the 1st of July. Um, it, it, was, uh, it was somewhat of a surprise to the force that was on the ground. So June 2023 was not really the first time that there was sort of there was friction between uh, the Malian government and the UN headquarters. So, could you talk about a little bit about some of the struggles in the preceding years um, r- regarding um, employment of the force, uh, problems the force encountered in fulfilling the mandate, um, structural problems or bureaucratic problems the Malian government put forth? Yeah. So the. You know, in our in our doctrine or in the joint doctrine, when we talk about peacekeeping operations, one of the components is to have a a host nation government that is supportive of the UN process that is being implemented inside of that country. And and I'll tell you from experience that did not exist in Mali. We 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 routinely uh, had had difficulties dealing with the Malian government and getting permissions to do what the mandate was asking the UN force to do. Um, and you can you can refer to continued uh, um, denial of, of ISR assets, our lack of freedom of man- movement or maneuver throughout that, that country as a force um, is all direct reflection on the Malian government's inability to provide that level of transparency that's needed for this type of mission to be successful. Um, it, it was just for 10 months, it was a constant, constant struggle to gain the trust of the Malian government. Um, to allow the UN force to do what it needed to do or was asked to do. What do you think drove in that period the government of Mali to come to the the nuclear option of telling the uh, UN to leave? So, so it was a ten year mission, and what I, what I think, if we can fast forward through time, um, I think you have a transitional president in place who continued to preach that. Uh, they were a sovereign country and they were able to choose the partners that they wanted to choose. And Mali chose uh, Russia and Wagner as their partner. And and I believe that having the United Nations there uh, did not allow the government of Mali to fully operate or freely operate in the way that they want to operate to regain the sovereignty of that country. Um, So I I think there's some, some strategic decisions made on partnerships at the governmental level uh, that led Mali down the road of, hey, we can't freely regain our sovereignty or, uh, you know, kind of quell some of the uh, extremist organizations inside of our country if the United Nations are here. So you think the Malian government kept the UN there just as a stamp of uh, political approval uh, of their of the coup-led government that was in place. I mean, why wait 
so long? Why do you think that they 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 tolerated having both the UN there and the the Wagner Group operating? So there are some some financial benefits to having a UN mission in your country mm -hmm. um, to the tune of, I, I believe the budget's about $1.2 billion annually uh, for the UN mission in Mali. So, it, it, you know, financially, it is, uh, it is not beneficial to remove a UN mission. I think what we saw leading up to the, the change of mandate in June and going into uh, July 1st when the new mandate was published, I think what we saw was um, a government that made a decision of their own freedom of movement and freedom of maneuver and regaining sovereignty in the way that they want to regain sovereignty over the financial benefits of having the UN. Um, so it, regardless of anybody's you know, perception of a UN peacekeeping force, as long as a blue helmet is in country. And when I say blue helmet, I'm referring to the, the peacekeepers that are on the ground uh, based on, on the headgear that we wear. But when you have a, a blue helmet on the ground, there there's still a level of, okay, somebody's watching to make sure we're doing the right thing all of the time. And I, and I do believe that over time, um, the government grew tired of always having that kind of watchful eye over their shoulder and decided to, to go a different route. So having the blue blue helmets in Mali, there was a restraining element to that, at least uh, in theory. They, is yeah, that correct? Yeah, that I think that in in that's that's really in theory, right? Yeah. So so about ninety percent of the force uh, is just dedicated to self sustainment, whether that's force protection or sustaining themselves logistically, and ten percent or less is actually mandate. Uh, focused or able to do mandate oriented tasks. So the the theory of hey, just our presence when we move on the roads, we are we are protecting civilians, we are preventing human rights tragedies, we are we are we're providing a more secure environment. I think that that still gives that watchful eye that maybe the government of Mali and their partners in Wagner don't necessarily agree with or want. Do you think that uh, the local population has the same opinion of the of Manusma that the government has, or is there maybe a difference in in opinion? But the government is the government. The the UN lacks the capability to effectively. Uh, work inside of the information operations sphere. So one of the officers that was with me was a community outreach officer. And so he ran the community outreach cell for the force headquarters inside of, uh, of Bamako, which is the capital of Mali. And, and so when I talk community outreach, his responsibility is to go out into the community or go into the various sectors, whether it's Gao or Timbuktu or, or Mopti, and interact with the community to make sure that the UN mission or the UN message is getting out. And they, the population has an understanding of the benefits of the UN, what the UN is able to do for them. We did not do a good job of that. And so the population really lacked, uh, I think, the knowledge of, hey, we've been here for 10 years. This is what we've done positively for you versus some of the myths and disinformation that, that would be uh, put into the population, whether it was from the Malian government or Wagner um, or Mali's other part, some of Mali's other partners, um, that miss and disinformation about, hey, Manusma is not doing what they're asked to do. So this is why we're asking them to leave. And they, they were very good, Mali being very good at communicating, hey, we are your security apparatus. We're here for your security. We don't need the United Nations. So short answer is, I, I don't know that the Malian population really had a good idea of the benefits of having Manusma there. 
So countering mis and disinformation is a, is a major issue, not just within the United Nations, but I think in, in all military operations today around the world. And, uh, and even, even we are working to find better ways to, to counter that. And in fact, currently the, the UN is working on developing training materials for that. Um, do you think that within your organization, uh, the consolidated effort of both the mission and the force uh, was approaching the problem of misinformation in the most effective way possible? No, I, and I don't. And so one of the struggles um, with Manusma specific, and I'll, I'll talk specifically about Mali, is the continuity or the, the coming together of the mission side, so the civilian side and the force side. I, I think there was a, uh, over my 10 months there, um, we observed, you know, there's a, there's a large disconnect between what the force, uh, the military component wants to do and what the mission or civilian component wants to do. And specifically in the, in the sphere of information operations, you had a civilian information operations chief, and then you had a military component to that. And very rarely were they able to come together and agree upon what messaging needs to go out to the population. And a lot of that comes from the lack of theme, themes and messages from the, you know, the senior level leadership, whether that's the civilian leadership or the military leadership, on what do we need to effectively communicate to the population to, to ensure that they have, the population has the knowledge to understand what it is Manusma is trying to do. Um, so that that's just one one um, you know one area of of disconnect between the civilian and the force leadership that we we saw inside of of Mali. Across peacekeeping, I think that's a a major issue because a, what uh, what can the UN do within its mandate to counter other uh, information operations targeted against them? And so I think that's what they they struggle with right now, and that's what we're we're trying to, to do is develop a way that using our public affairs, public outreach, community outreach, all of those types of things that, that you talked about. Hopefully we'll learn some lessons from MINUSMA combined with some of the other ones, MINUSCO and some of the other missions to, to come up with good solutions to counter mis and disinformation, hate, hate speech, and so on. Joe, I'd like to kind of delve into the world of this uh, multinational operations and multicultural staff, even right, um, that you worked on a staff of, I think you said, I mean, over, certainly over a hundred and I think 120 uh, staff officers on the force uh, headquarters staff, and of course the the formations under under that force headquarters are multinational as well, uh, mixed units, um, uh, different languages. Certainly, English was the was the language of the mission, but um, this was an incredibly complex mission in itself, just for one nation with its own sets of procedures. Could you talk a little bit about the the trouble of working on an international multinational staff like that? Yeah, and you know, one of the first things you asked me was, you know, what were my expectations? Um, and I, I, I didn't really know what to expect going in. But when I describe my experience in Mali and a member of, it was 198 staff officers inside of the force headquarters from all different nations, I, I tell everybody it's unique. Um, and so I, I was the command group advisor, so the senior advisor. And under me, I had a gender advisor from Nigeria. I had a best practices officer from Niger. I had a budget officer from Pakistan. I had a, uh, a community outreach officer from Tunisia. So the, the diversity of skill sets was incredible. 
Um, and it's really, really hard to describe the, the level of, I guess, competence. Um, you know, everybody works hard. Um, so I don't want to take away from everybody, but when you talk about the complex environment of Mali and what the UN asks Manusma to do, I'm not sure that there's necessarily the, the, the skill sets from some of the contributing nations to, to accomplish, uh, what's being asked of them. Um, and then when you, when you go to the subordinate units or the troop contributing countries, not everybody is trained to the same standard. The UN does have a standard um, that they're that they are supposed to meet before they come, uh, depending on what job it is that they're they're being tasked to do inside of the country. But not every nation will provide a force that is capable to do what they're being asked to do. And part of that is, you know, there's just financial. There's financial reward for troop contributing countries or TCCs, as we call them, to to give force to a mission like this. Um, so th there may not be necessarily uh, the drive to train them versus just get them into the mission as quickly as possible for the financial benefits. Um, and then on top of that, every troop contributing country or TCC will come with a national caveat. Hey, we're not going to do that. And then there's no mechanism at the force headquarters level to hold them accountable. So there, there's, you know, in the U S military, we have the UCMJ that, that you, you know, if you're not following orders or not doing what you're told to do, then there's some type of repercussion or accountability. You don't necessarily have that, um, inside of a UN mission. I think that the, uh, interesting point there, if you take it a step further, is that some of these countries are, are small landlocked, the troop contributing countries, small landlocked countries where, their major concern for their military is border security. Uh, they're not out there training for large-scale offensive operations. And we come in with a, a different mentality from the U.S. military. Um, it's got to be an adjustment to, uh, for you, for us, when we go into a mission like that to be able to then realize that, okay, this person's trained for one specific mission from their country, but now they're being asked to do something much more complex uh, to find that common ground where where their skill set does meet the requirement. So that's, a, I think, a, an important point for us to remember is that uh, you know, there's, how many t how many countries would you say were in MINUSMA? Oh my goodness. Um, I don't know off the top of my just head. Just, okay, yeah, 198 yeah. staff officers. Staff officers, 10 of which yeah, from the U.S. Yeah, so it, there's a lot, of, a lot of nations. So there's a lot there, and, and there's a lot to think about uh, in a multicultural environment like that. And... Uh, and I remember when I, I dealt with uh, the UN mission in Liberia, when I had some peacekeepers there, uh, the big issue was over that very issue for our staff officers was uh, trying to find uh, the level for planning, especially where do we meet in the middle so that uh, we're not discounting people who haven't trained to do that, but including them and being able to be successful in doing a mission planning. Right. And, and that's so, and that was a struggle, you know, for me personally, is I come in with, you know, 23 years of U.S. Army experience, and there's a certain way that we're regimented to do things. And you have to, so you, you would almost have to separate separate the two in here. And, you know, my primary role was to advise the commander. So part of it is, hey, I'm going to bring my U.S. Army perspective to things and, and try to solve some of these problems. But you have to, you quickly realize that you have to understand that not everybody is is at that level. Um, even senior officers in other other nations' armies are not. And that's not that they're not good soldiers or good officers. It's just that the training is not necessarily there. I, I will tell you, you, you can tell the, the foreign officers that have been trained in U.S. military institutions, whether that's, you know, uh, the Army's 
uh, ILE or CGSC or the Army's War College or Navy or, or Air Force, you name the institution, but you can tell the there there's a difference between who's been trained in, in various parts of the world. But, you know, that that was part of the unique experience was realizing that, hey, I can't come in here with 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 a U.S. Army staff perspective and expect problems to be solved in that manner. And that seems like a great place to end episode one. Join us again in the next episode to hear more of Joe's experiences serving on the UN Peacekeeping Force in Mali. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.